All right, good morning. Kind of a gloomy day, but uh, we know the light of the world, which is Christ. So Merry Christmas this morning. Good to see you. And uh, let's start out with a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, and we thank you particularly this morning for your word. And we thank you that your word tells us of your character. It tells us of ourselves, tells us of the truth, tells us of salvation, tells us of your son, tells us of uh, sin and the enemy uh, that we have in our flesh and in Satan and the victory that we have in Christ. And so we pray that we might not be those who um, turn a deaf ear to your word, but we would be those who um, hear and heed and obey and are blessed uh, because of your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, in this school year, our emphasis is on discipleship. The um, booklet that we're going through is called The Biblical Principles of Living Life as a Disciple of Jesus Christ. And basically, the lessons are arranged around the responsibilities of uh, the Christian life. And the Sunday morning Sunday school teachers are just kind of free to choose a responsibility, whether it's in the booklet or not, and uh, give um, scripture and what the Lord's laid on our heart uh, for that. So what I wanted to talk to you about this morning is Bible reading. Bible reading. Um, Bible reading is one of the responsibilities of a disciple. If you are a disciple of Christ, you need to know God's word. And you need to be meditating on God's word. And actually, you need to find your life in God's word. So my point this morning is just to kind of encourage you to do this. It comes towards the end of the year. So if you're making a New Year's resolution, uh, and actually I'll give you another message on it uh, before New Year's. So this is just kind of in preparation um, for that as well. So um, in thinking about Bible reading and uh, its place in the Christian life, I've been impressed again by how it um, reinforces all the other responsibilities of the Christian life and some that we've been looking at uh, recently, such as prayer. And um, in thinking about prayer, um, I've been impressed with, and I've taught here as well, on the importance of praying scripture back to God. You're trying to pray according to God's will, and the Lord wants us to grapple with him in prayer and to present our requests and frame them in terms of, Lord, do this, and do this because I believe it's it would be in keeping with your character to do this. Or it would be in keeping with your promise, that's even better, um, to do this um, in prayer. And so the Lord um, withholds blessing from us because he wants us to um, grasp it by prayer, to take it um, by prayer. And that's a way for us not only to receive the blessing from the Lord, but to know it comes from him and to know his character better through prayer. Uh, and so it's important for us to be praying according to scripture. If you want to be praying, not just giving a list of things you want, but um, having fellowship with the Lord in prayer and uh, knowing him better because of uh, prayer. Any prayer is good, but we want to deepen our prayer. And so uh, to pray according to scripture is good. So you need to read your Bible for ammunition, for praying. You know, you need to know the promises. You need to know God's character according to scripture if you're going to pray um, in that way, the way a disciple should grow in um, praying. And so scripture reading buttresses and reinforces another responsibility, prayer. Okay. Um, another uh, thing that scripture reading fits with hand in hand is walking by the Spirit. Walking by the Spirit. We talked about that. We tried to put it into words, tried to grasp it. What it means to walk under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Under the influence of another uh, who brings an atmosphere of power, of purity, of holiness, of love, um, and all the fruit of the Spirit, and to walk not uh, according to your own spirit, but according to the Holy Spirit. Um, we tried to put that into words, but it certainly overlaps with being saturated with Scripture, meditating on Scripture. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 5.18, where it gives the command, uh, walk by the Spirit, don't be controlled by wine, but uh, instead uh, be filled with the Spirit is what it says. Um, the parallel passage in Colossians, which is um, uh, 
a similar letter, especially in some parts, especially in that part, um, the parallel command to that is let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So if you're, uh, those aren't identical ideas, but they're certainly overlapping. Um, to be filled with the Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit's influences, to be walking, um, uh, also uh, letting the word of Christ dwell richly. I think if you're walking by the Spirit, um, certain scriptures are going to be coming to mind, commands, um, promises, uh, different parts of uh, God's character that come uh, through scripture. The Holy Spirit will bring something to mind. People talk about that. Well, something from scripture and something appropriate. Uh, um, being filled with the Spirit is also put together with walking in wisdom. So knowing the right way to apply God's word uh, according to the need of the moment. And so uh, you need to read your Bible in order to walk by the Spirit, in order to know what it is and for that to be a reality in um, in your life. So scripture reading overlaps with all the responsibilities, all the other responsibilities of the Christian life. Those are two of them, praying, walking according to the Spirit. Except in a way, I think this one is the most important of all. In a way, it's foundational to um, the rest of them. Um, because when God does something, he does it by speaking. He does it by speaking. Um, when God creates, of course, he does it by speaking. Scripture talks about that. Let me point you to 1 Psalm um, 33. And verse 6, By the word of the Lord the, the, Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all of their hosts uh, and then it goes on in the Psalm, verse 9, for he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. So the Lord created the whole universe that you see by speaking it. Let there be light. And there was light. Um, and so he spoke the world into um, existence. Um, he does the same for us in creating a new nature in us. And so uh, David, the psalmist, uh, writes, uh, create in me a clean heart. Uh, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. And how does God do it? How does God create and then sustain a new heart, a clean heart within us and a steadfast spirit? Well, he does it by speaking. He does it the same way that he created the world. And so, um, you know, in, in that way, I think, because the whole life of sanctification is an act of God in us, um, the, the uh, responsibility of hearing God's word is uh, foundational uh, in a, to the rest of uh, these um, responsibilities. Um, Stephen was a man mighty in, uh, in, in the Holy Spirit, mighty in God's word. He was full of grace and power. He was uh, arguing with uh, those who uh, were denying that Jesus was the Messiah, and they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking, and we get one example of that in the sermon that he preached before he was uh, the first martyr recorded in um, Scripture. But uh, as part of his uh, sermon, he, he actually really rebuked the people um, that were opposing him and opposing Christ, and he calls them, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You were doing just as your fathers did. That was kind of the culmination of his sermon. And I was looking at that uh, because last week I was um, preaching on the circumcision without hands, the circumcision of the heart. And this is one of the number of passages in Scripture that talks about being uncircumcised in heart, um, which is what Stephen accuses the Jewish leaders uh, of being, just like their uh, forefathers. But he, he uh, Stephen talks about not just uncircumcised in heart, in, in need of a heart surgery, but also uncircumcised in ears. And that's a, you can see that that's kind of gross almost, but um, need an ear surgery too, because they were uh, deaf of uh, hearing. Their uh, ears were uh, stopped up. And so uh, in order for God to create the new heart, it comes in through the ears. It comes in through what you're hearing. It is through uh, the word of God. God always creates um, by um, his word, by speaking. And so the circumcision without hands in the heart comes through the ears. You need not only a uh, circumcised heart, but also circumcised ears. And uh, Stephen, a man uh, who is mighty in scriptures, mighty in uh, God's word, was able to make that um, connection and apply scripture um, in that way. Okay, um, Bible reading 
is a discipline. It's a discipline. Um, and because of that, you probably need a plan. And I've heard different people talk about this and say, well, you shouldn't have a plan when you read the Bible because it's just like any other book. You should just read it because you want to read it. And I thought, well, you know, there's some books that I actually have on a plan because I want to, re- I want to make sure to read the book. And so I plan out to read it a little bit of, at a time. Um, that's the way I read. But, um, I kind of get the point. You can, um, it's not to be rote. It's to be something that you, um, do because you want to. However, it, um, it, it's, it's not going to be done. It's not going to be done regularly unless it's a discipline. So that's related to the word, uh, disciple. And, uh, for that, it's good to have, um, a plan for that. We need to be reading the Bible every day. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 32, this is about wisdom, the Lord's uh, wisdom, and uh, it personifies wisdom, and part of the point is if you seek wisdom, you'll find it. You won't, it's not going to be a, a search that you can never get to the end to, and so wisdom is personified speaking. Now, therefore, O sons, listen to me, for blessed are they who keep my ways. Heed instruction and be wise, and do not neglect it. Blessed is the man who listens to me, Watching daily at my gates, waiting at my doorposts, for he who finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. He who sins against me injures himself. All those who hate me love death. So it talks about uh, the person seeking wisdom, and they're doing it daily. They're daily watching at the gates of uh, wisdom, and uh, wisdom guarantees if you seek um, in that way, you will um, find it. So um, one thing that we encourage people to do at Trinity, and we've done for, I think, throughout the history of the church, is to read the Bible through every year. And we provide a daily Bible reading calendar um, for this. I use it. I've gone through it. I've done this for a long time. So I kind of know that I can finish because I've done it each year. Um, if I fall behind, I, I can catch catch up. It's probably hardest to do the first time uh, to do it. Uh, this goes through... Um, uh, the Old Testament in order of the books and uh, the New Testament in order of the books um, at the same time. Um, it's good to pace yourself. Probably looking around at you all, I think most of you could probably do this in a year. Not all of you that I'm looking at. The point is really not the pace of it. That's not the most important thing. The most important thing is to be in Scripture regularly, to be in Scripture every day. I think another important thing is uh, to make sure you're covering all of the Bible, the whole counsel of God and not just your favorite parts. Not say, well, I've got this, this uh, part of scripture that I like and I'm just going to stay in that, you know, the, the scripture is, uh, given. It's all profitable and it works together as a whole and, uh, a Christian, a disciple is to have a good grasp of the whole. So if you've never read through the Bible, a lot of Christians haven't. The Bible's a long book. A lot of Christians haven't read through the Bible. You probably should be on some sort of plan that is going to take you to finishing uh, the whole of the Bible for the first time. I don't think that's beyond any of you. But there, there's other plans that are a little less aggressive for covering the whole Bible. I looked at one that was a two-year, um, take you through the Bible in two years. And I noticed that it had, you know, at the end of the month, it had um, some catch-up days, you know, scheduled. That's kind of nice. Um, this takes you about 15 minutes a day, which is very manageable until you start missing a couple of days. And then, then it really piles on and you got to add up and um, catch up. One thing that I've used in more recent years, I didn't, I didn't start out doing this, is uh, audio Bible. Um, and that's not cheating, by the way. Um, some people think that's cheating. And, and I, it can be good. It's... It, for me, at least, it's probably best to see it as you're reading it, uh, read it from the pages of uh, Scripture. For, for most of the time of the church, the Bible was not readily available to take home in a copy um, because that's just the way printing uh, worked. And even the Bible itself talks about um, a blessing on the one who reads and those who hear. I'm talking about uh, Revelation. It's put in that way. Um, remember, the Revelation has a blessing for those who read it and heed it, it's the final book of the Bible. And um, the writer, John, is aware that it's the final book of the Bible. So I think that this would apply to the whole Bible, certainly to the book of Revelation. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it for the time is near. So um, it's interesting it puts it that way. The one who reads singular and those who hear plural because uh, most of the way in which the Bible was read at the early church and for most of church history would be one person reading it out loud and other people hearing it at church. So you read it probably in smaller portions 
you'd meditate on what was read during the week, memorize it maybe, um, because you didn't have the luxury of having it written and readily um, available. So, but I, my point is in that they're hearing it audibly. They're hearing it audibly, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's not cheating. There's a blessing actually for it, um, and it matches the blessing in um, Psalm one. Blessed is the man who's studying um, scripture and meditating on it uh, day and night. And so um, there's a blessing that comes uh, from studying scripture, whether you hear it or um, or read it. Um, what should you get out of scripture? What should you be expecting when you read your daily portion of um, scripture uh, each day? Um, and I think people are sometimes disappointed if they're just looking for kind of a nugget that they can put into use that day. Sometimes you find that in scripture, you know, maybe if you're in Proverbs especially, and it, and it uh, applies to a situation that you're facing. Um, sometimes you don't. You're not going to find something you're going to immediately put into use for that day, and so sometimes people are, are disappointed. I think it helps to understand that the main character in Scripture, no matter which character you're reading about, the main character is God. main character in Scripture is God. And so you read mostly to learn about him and to learn about his character. So um, be thinking of that as you're reading through Scripture. Uh, you're reading to know God. You're reading to know God. God is the main character. He's the hero of uh, Scripture. You're reading it to learn about him. So you should be aware, and that's on every page of Scripture, what it reflects about the character of God. That's what you should be thinking about, is how I relate to him according to his character. And then be looking for promises. There's there's thousands of promises in uh, Scripture. And when you read a promise, you're to believe it. You're to believe it. You're to exercise faith in believing it. And actually, the promise relates to what I just said. The promise reveals God's character. God promises things only that are according to his character. So it promises something to be believed, something that should jump off the page at you. But it it should do the same thing that you're looking for in uh, seeking to know the character of God. And then, of course, and this is good for disciples, commands. Um, That's the Great Commission. That's uh, singled out. Uh, for what a disciple is, you're to be, we're to be baptizing, uh, from the nations, uh, d- making disciples, teaching them all things I commanded you. So, uh, commands in scripture. And so when you see a command, um, in scripture, if it's a command for you, um, you should obey it. You should obey it. And there's some commands that are for, um, um, you know, for a very specific situation, like Jeremiah wants you to go, bury this loincloth over, um, make a journey. You don't have to do that. That's not a command that's for you. And, and actually a lot of the commands um, for Israel are in that way, are, are that way as well. Um, but commands certainly in the New Testament and many of the commands in the Old Testament as well um, apply uh, to you. And that should jump off the page. It's something to obey. It's something to obey when you see a command of scripture to grow in obeying. That also reflects God's character. The commands that God gives all of them, whether they're to you or not, um, are a reflection of his character. So actually all of it, whether it's learning about God's character directly, uh, believing his promises or obeying his commands uh, should open a door to the character of God. And that's really what um, the whole plan of salvation is all about, is knowing God. John chapter 17 Verse uh, 1 through 3, and this is where sort of all the lines of Scripture are converging on the central act of Scripture, the cross, and uh, the accomplishment of our salvation. The Lord prayed right before this. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's the purpose. It's that we might have eternal life. And what is eternal life? The real definition of eternal life, of uh, being alive with the fullness of life that comes from God is knowing God, is knowing God. That's what gives us life. That is the definition of um, eternal life is knowing God's character and especially his character as revealed through his son. That's the purpose of God's word is uh, that you might know um, God. Um, and that's the way in which we grow um, as well. Second Peter chapter 3, verse uh, 18. Peter, after talking a little bit about scripture, says, Grow in the grace and knowledge uh, 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. So you're to grow in knowing the character of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, which is um, um, especially his grace, especially his grace uh, towards us as sort of front and center and what he presents about his um, character. So you read the Bible, whether reading about the character of God, who's the main character, the promises to be believed or the commands uh, to be obeyed, to know his um, character. And I think one thing that's helpful in that when you're reading scripture and thinking about the daily task of reading uh, scripture, his character is not what you expect. His character is not what you expect. I think I think that's an obstacle for people for um, maybe people who aren't even sure if they're saved. But but um, for uh, reading scripture is that they just assume that they're going to find what they expect of God in scripture. You know, somebody who wants them to be nice, you know, um, who, who uh, generally cares about um, uh, uh, holiness, kind of, or, you know, um, sort of this um, generic view of God. That's not what you find in Scripture. You have a God who actually destroys all those expectations and presents himself as something that's very foreign to the way the natural man thinks of God, to the way anyone thinks of God apart from the revelation of Christ, apart from the revelation of scripture. For example, God is way more gracious than you could ever imagine him to be. And he's way more just than you could ever uh, imagine him to, to be. And you see that um, in scripture. In other words, he punishes sin. He punishes every sin. If you're just imagining God according to the natural man, you think, well, he, God probably cares about sin, but he, you know, he probably let, lets some stuff go. You know, that's how I would imagine God. You know, that's how it looks like. Looks like people get away with some things um, in the world. You read in Scripture, you find that God punishes every sin. You find that even the smallest sin is an offense against God that deserves an eternal uh, punishment. That's different from what you'd expect. You also find that God is gracious to the worst of sinners, and uh, actually only gracious towards those who who recognize themselves as uh, rebels from the heart uh, against Him, and so. Um, what you read in scripture really defies your expectations, your natural expectations. That's what uh, the writer of Psalm 119 expects from uh, the word of God. Psalm 119, verse 18. Open my eyes that I may hope behold wonderful things from your law. And that word wonderful has a very specific meaning. It means things that transcend imagination. Things that a human being couldn't imagine but come from God himself and um, uh, defy anything that we could expect of him. So open my eyes that I behold not you know, the things that I expect anyway, the things that I could have written myself and uh, written a Bible myself. No, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your uh, law. Um, similar um, is First uh, Corinthians is a scripture that I really like. Um, and it kind of talks about how that the, the, the message of the cross itself captures everything that God reveals uh, throughout his uh, scriptures. But it says, The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to uh, those of us who are being saved is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? The person who um, is wise in knowing what to expect from God has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. All the things you'd expect about God don't lead to knowing God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. And so what you have in scripture is a message that defies the proud, defies the expectations, defies uh, the wise, and is a message ultimately uh, that is foolish in the eyes of the world, and yet it's the only pathway to uh, God. And so um, Paul goes on to talk about, um, I determined to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what perfectly sums up the message of uh, Scripture, is how it all converges on the cross and resurrection of Christ. And then he says, we speak a wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom, which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen 
ear is not heard and which has not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. And he goes on to say how the natural man can't even understand these things. You have to be spiritual. You have to be made uh, alive uh, by the Holy Spirit in order to understand any of these things because they defy uh, under uh, our um, natural uh, expectations and understanding. So you should think of that when you come to the word of God. I'm not going to hear something that I would expect um, apart from Christ. Um according to my natural expectations, but I'm going to hear something that I, that I wouldn't expect. And for that reason, I need to be reminded of it. I need to be reminded of it um, every day in um, scripture. Um, let me read you something that I've, I've read before. I know, but it's, it's kind of, I think it's a good and worth reading again. It's from Martin Luther. He talks about a way of studying scripture. Um, according to three techniques, you, you could say, for studying scripture, which is meditation, prayer, and then a third one, which he says is the crown of all of them. It's basically trouble. It's a time of trouble that leads you to scripture to really understand um, what it means. So I'll, I'll read you what he wrote. It's pretty good. He wrote this as an old man, and people put together a, a collection of some of his works during his uh, lifetime. So he wrote a preface to it, and in the preface he says, I was hoping that when the gospel was made clear that people would stop reading other people's books. <laughs> so I was hoping something like this wouldn't have to take place and people would just study the Bible. Uh, but he says, I can't prevent it. And so he talks about that. But then he says, I, I want to tell you how to study the Bible too. He says, moreover, I want to point out to you a correct way of studying theology, for I have had practice in that. If you keep to it, you will become so learned that you yourself could, if it were necessary, write books. Just as uh, good as those of the fathers and councils, even as I in God dare to presume and boast without arrogance and lying, that in the matter of writing books, I do not stand much behind some of the fathers of my life. I can by no means make the same boast. This is the way, the way to study scripture is taught by holy King David and doubtlessly also used by all the patriarchs and prophets in the 119th Psalm. There you will find three rules amply presented throughout the whole Psalm. They are um, prayer. Meditation, and then he uses this word for trouble, or it's actually a word that means an attack. Um, so he goes through these three. Firstly, you should know that the Holy Scriptures constitute a book which turns the wisdom of all other books into foolishness, because uh, not one teaches about eternal life except this one alone. Therefore, you should straightway despair of your reason and understanding. With them, you will not attain eternal life, but on the contrary, your presumptuousness will plunge you and others with you out of heaven, as happened to Lucifer into the abyss of hell. But kneel down in your room and pray to God with real humility and earnestness that he, through his dear son, may give you his Holy Spirit who will enlighten you and lead you and give you understanding. This is how David keeps praying in the above mentioned psalm. Teach me, Lord, instruct me, lead me, show me, and many more words like these. Although he well knew and daily heard and read the text of Moses and other books besides, still he wanted to lay hold of the real teacher of the scriptures himself, that he might not seize upon them pell-mell with his reason and become his own teacher. For such practice gives rise to factious spirits who allow themselves to nurture the delusion that scriptures are subject to them and can be easily grasped with their reason as if they were Aesop's fables, for which no Holy Spirit and no prayers are needed. So he says you should pray. When you sit down, um, scripture, understand the Holy Spirit is uh, the teacher. Your reason is not the teacher. You're not going to find something that you expect. So pray uh, that the Lord would open your eyes to the meaning of scripture. Secondly, you should meditate. That is not only uh, in your heart, but also externally by actually repeating and comparing oral speech and literal words of the book, reading and rereading them with diligent attention and reflection so that you may see what the Holy Spirit means by them. And take care that you do not, do not grow weary or think that you have done enough when you have read, heard, and spoken them once or twice, and that you then have complete understanding. You will never be a particularly good theologian if you do that, for you will be like untimely fruit, which falls to the ground before it's half ripe. So he's talking about meditation. I think involved in that would be interpretation. Um, it takes some effort to understand Scripture. Scripture talks about um, uh, a workman who doesn't need to be ashamed of rightly dividing the word of truth, and it takes some effort. It doesn't just happen right away. It takes some thinking, takes some effort in uh, to understand what Scripture means and to interpret it. Thus you see in the same psalm how David constantly boasts that he will talk, meditate, speak, sing, hear, read by day and by night, and always about nothing except God's word and commandment. For God will not give you his spirit without the external word. So take your cue from that. 
his command to write, preach, read, hear, sing, speak, etc. outwardly was not given in vain. So you're to pray, you're to meditate on scripture, to think about it, think about what it means, uh, turn it over in your mind again and again. Thirdly, there is, and then he uses this word, it's a word for an attack. People have translated it a different way, like depression or something like that. But it, it means, uh, it really means an attack. Trouble. This is the touchstone, which teaches you not only to know and understand, but also to experience how right, how true, how sweet, how lovely, how mighty, how comforting God's word is. Wisdom beyond all wisdom. Thus you see how David in the psalm mentioned complains so often about all kinds of enemies, arrogant princes or tyrants, false spirits and factions, whom he must tolerate because he meditates, that is, because he is occupied with God's word, as has been said, in all manner of ways. For as soon as God's word takes root and grows in you, the devil will harry you and will make a real doctor of you by his assaults, will teach you to seek and love God's word. I myself am deeply indebted to my papist enemies that though the devil's raging they through the devil's raging they have beaten oppressed and distressed me so much that is to say they've made a fairly good theologian of me which i would not have become otherwise and i hardly grant them what they have won in return for making this of me honor victory and triumph for that is the way that they wanted it there now with that you have david's rules if you study hard in accord with his example then you also sing and boast with him in the psalms the law of thy mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces also, thy commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for thy testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ages, for I keep thy precepts. And it will be your experience that the books of the fathers will taste stale and putrid to you. In comparison, you will not only despise books written by adversaries, but the longer you write and teach, the less you will be pleased with yourself. When you have reached this point, then do not be afraid to hope that you've begun to become a real theologian who can teach not only the young and imperfect Christians, but also the maturing and perfect ones. For indeed, Christ's church has all kinds of Christians in it who are young, old, weak, sick, healthy, strong, energetic, lazy, simple, wise, etc. So um, just a good uh, description of finding your life in scripture. And uh, there's no substitute for trouble to um, draw you to scriptures to make it sweet to your taste. But he says, as soon as you occupy yourself in scripture, you find you have an enemy. You have an enemy within the flesh. You have a devil without the world uh, around you. We're in the midst of a battle. So scripture is to be read in the midst of, it's a, it's a battle manual. It's a battle book. You've got an attack of scripture. And actually there's no other way for a proud person like you and like me to come to love scripture is to be pressed and pushed in the, in the battle of, um, of the Christian life, um, in that way. And so there's really no substitute for that. And Satan in his attacks actually ends up accomplishing the opposite of what he uh, wanted to accomplish. He wants to separate you from scripture, he wants you to despair of, of learning any scripture. And what he ends up doing is making it even more precious, uh, to us, uh, in that way. Okay. I was going to use the rest of the time um, just to give kind of uh, an outline. I don't know what to call this. An outline of what to expect if you're reading through scripture um, in a year. And I thought uh, first I'd just look at the table of contents of your Bible. You probably know this. Um, but just uh, to talk about how the Bible is laid out. If you're reading through in a year, you'll cover this. Uh, next year. Uh, but the first five books of the Bible are the earliest. Uh, the Pentateuch, five books, is what that means. They're written by um, Moses. They are um, foundational. Um, Genesis is a book of beginnings, beginning of creation, beginning of Israel, uh, beginning of all kinds of things um, that are um, given in um, Genesis and the story of the patriarchs. Exodus is where God puts his power on display. Says, I'm going to show you what my name really means. And he does it in this great act of redemption, of uh, redeeming the children of Israel out of um, Egypt. And that begins uh, basically the, the beginning of the national history of Israel. It was promised to the patriarchs hundreds of years before that, but now it starts to take shape and uh, the life of uh, the nation of Israel. Um, in the end of Deuteronomy, um, Moses teaches the children of Israel a song about their own history, which says they're going to fail. They're going to fail. They've, they've, uh, were promised, uh, a covenant, uh, by Abraham was promised 
that they would be a great nation. It was a one-way covenant. God's going to do it. Um, but uh, in um, uh, Mount Sinai, in Exodus, they uh, come under a two-way covenant. I will bless you in the land if you will obey um, my laws. And uh, what Moses teaches them, because it's apparent already um, within one lifetime uh, of that point, is they're going to fail in that covenant. And so they're going to need a new covenant uh, that the Lord is going to make with them by which he empowers them to be um, obedient. Um, so uh, the, the rest of the, 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 well, the books that come after Deuteronomy trace history. They're called the history books. And they trace basically continuous history uh, from the time of Moses, uh, which Joshua picks up on right away, um, all the way down to um, the time of um, the Persian Empire. So from Joshua all the way down to um, Esther. And Nehemiah would be the last book chronologically. And that traces basically a continuous history of um, almost a thousand years. And these are the uh, history books. And you read about the ups and downs of the nation of Israel, but actually it's a story of failure. Um, the next group of books is the wisdom books from Job to um, Song of Solomon. And these books are sort of timeless Timeless, like Proverbs is timeless wisdom. Um, uh, Job happens outside of the um, uh, story of the nation of Israel, probably before the nation of Israel, and so Job is not Jewish um, and uh, grapples with kind of some timeless questions about God and about um, suffering. Proverbs is timeless wisdom. Ecclesiastes is is a little bit of a different perspective and a, a difficult book. Uh, maybe asking a question: Why, um, what is is wise and what's taught in wisdom doesn't always determine the outcome. Um, and uh, so uh, presents that. Song of Solomon is about um, love. So um, these are the wisdom. They're um, mostly in uh, poetry. And so as you go from history to wisdom, you go from prose, a straightforward account, to a poetic. And then the prophets are next, and that takes you from Isaiah to the end of the Old Testament, also mostly in poetry. And the prophets write, as Israel begins to fail, the prophets start looking forward to a future um, that uh, in which the Lord will act. It's not the future that the trajectory of Israel is headed towards. They're headed towards more and more failure. Um, in fact, Jeremiah lives through that time and writes the book of Lamentations, but they look forward to God suddenly acting by sending his Messiah and uh, changing, suddenly changing the course of um, history. Um, then the New Testament is uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, of course, centers in on the cross uh, of Christ and his resurrection, his coming to earth, his ministry. Um, Acts is a sequel to Luke, and so it takes you um, from the resurrection of Christ through the ministry of Peter to the ministry of Paul to the Gentile church, it takes you uh, from Jerusalem where it starts to Rome, where it ends with Paul um, in prison. Then um, the uh, next are the epistles, and um, Paul's epistles are first from Romans to Philemon, and they're basically grouped, not chronologically, but from largest to smallest. So Romans is the largest generally, and then you go down, um, and these are the uh, letters that Paul wrote. Then the next group of epistles written to churches um, is uh, Hebrews to Jude. Those are, these are called the general epistles. Um, in other words, epistles not written by Paul, uh, but written by others. And uh, those are also grouped generally from largest to smallest, so starting with Hebrews and then going to Jude, which is uh, the smallest. And then the last and final book is the book of Revelation, um, written by John, and that takes you to the end of world history, the return of Christ and uh, and actually his reign on the earth and then the, the creation of a new heavens and um, new uh, earth. Um Why so much history and why so much Israelite history? And I ask that question because if you read your Bible through, um, um, you will find um, 
that you're reading a lot about the history of Israel. And you might ask yourself, why? Um, it is not just to give you example after example of uh, people failing or succeeding in uh, walking with God and uh, to give you kind of an endless series of uh, examples. There's a big picture as well. Remember, God is the main character of Scripture, and he uh, his he goes beyond just one person's uh, lifetime, and there's a sweep uh, of history that uh, speaks of God's character that has to do with the nation of Israel, the, the sweep of history as a whole, and especially the sweep of this one uh, nation. And um, what God is revealing about his character in Scripture and in the whole sweep of Scripture is that he is a redeemer. He's a redeemer. Um, and that's something that you don't know just from observing uh, the world around you. You know it from Scripture. His character is he is a redeemer. And what that means is that he restores what is ruined. He restores what is ruined. And that's why God has an interest in history. That's why the Bible has an interest in history, because the finished story of history and what happens in history from start to finish shows God to be a redeemer, shows God to be one who restores what has been um, ruined. Um, and I say it's the finished story of history, which shows that, and history isn't finished yet. So if you uh, look with your eye at the world around you, you might not know that God is a redeemer. You know, might not know that it is his purpose and it's his character to restore what uh, has been uh, ruined. But when you read this book, and you're going to read it mostly in promise, it's going to be apparent to faith. You're, then you'll see by faith that God is a redeemer who restores what is um, ruined. So scripture starts with creation, creation, which God cares about because it reflects his character. He cares about all the things that he uh, created. God creates in Genesis. He sets man over his creation. He gives man dominion over it. And then Satan ruins the entire creation by ruining man, by bringing sin uh, to man. The entire creation is cursed because of man, uh, because Satan has uh, ruined uh, mankind in sin. He's also ruined all of God's creation. So God's project that he started out with and created and called good has been ruined. Uh, God curses creation. That's what it deserves. But he also gives one promise, gives one promise. Genesis 3.15, it's given to Satan, who's appeared um, as a serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, but you shall bruise him on the heel. And so he says to Satan, you think you've won a victory. You think you've gotten an ally in uh, man, but there's coming one who's born of a woman who's going to reverse this. And he uses the language of a serpent um, to give this promise and uh, prophecy by saying to Satan, it's in bruising this one who's coming on the heel that he's going to crush your head. And that's a reference to the cross. Satan's going to be like a snake um, attacking the one born of the woman, Christ. Um, and Satan is going to uh, bring his own uh, destruction um, in, uh, in in that. So uh, it's just given a promise that uh, mankind somehow is going to reverse what Satan did. One born of a woman, one born of Eve is going to, or the offspring of Eve is going to somehow reverse what um, Satan has uh, done. Um, how do they do? How does mankind do? Well, they fail. They And God has to send a flood, um, uh, saving only one family of the earth and then starting over. Uh, he starts over with a promise never to bring a flood on the earth again until um, his redemption has taken place. Um, and then he calls Abraham to be a chosen nation. He calls Abraham to be a chosen nation. What does it mean to be a chosen nation? And that's an important question because um, I've gotten you to the calling of Abraham to, for his family to be a chosen nation. If you're reading your Bible through in the year, that gets you to about January 4th or January 3rd. And then the rest of what you're going to be reading about is a lot about this nation. So what does it mean to be um, a chosen nation? And uh, what God promises to Abraham is that his family will be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. 
And that, that's an important word, a blessing to the nations of the earth because the world is cursed. So the, his family is going to bring blessing to the earth. And it seems to me he's going to bring blessing as a nation living in the land that he's uh, promised to them and being obedient and leading the world into obedience so that the world uh, changes its tone. Actually, it's going to be the redemption of the whole cosmos. It's all 12 tribes that are involved in being this blessing, not just Judah that produces um, Christ, but all 12 tribes. Um, and so it's Abraham's family. There's a passage, um, Genesis 18, the story of Sodom and uh, Gomorrah, where God says uh, to Abraham that he's destined to be, it's kind of an aside, let me just read it, Genesis 18, verse 17 to 19. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and judgment, justice, so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has uh, spoken to him. And so a lot of uh, the Old Testament, like the circumcision that is given to Abraham is to keep him distinct from the other nations of the world. And then the laws, the food laws, all these things that are, keep them distinct from uh, the Gentiles. It's like to quarantine this a special nation with the promise that they will become an obedient nation and uh, change the, um, the atmosphere, so to speak, of uh, the world um, itself to bring the world from ruin back to blessing. And so it's like you're quarantining one special nation to be the doctor, so to speak, and then they're going to they're going to they're going to become obedient to the Lord and then they're going to lead the world into that same health, spiritual uh, health. But what do you find? What's the trajectory of the Old Testament? Well, the doctor is just as sick as the patients and actually sicker. You know, they come into the land of Canaan, they replace uh, the Canaanites who are especially sinful and then they become like the Canaanites themselves. So the story of the Old Testament, it seems that uh, everything is headed towards ruin. The nation of Israel is headed uh, towards uh, ruin. So the prophets start speaking of a coming king, a one person who's going to reverse uh, everything. And uh, Christ's cross becomes the hinge point of all of uh, scripture. He dies with the title over his head, King of the Jews. He's the King of Israel. He's um, the Israelite kings. That's why you're reading so much about um, Israel. But it's as if God's plan becomes smaller and smaller until it converges on the death and the resurrection of Christ. And of course, he dies as a substitute for sinners. That's sort of the key uh, to all of it. It's an atoning death for uh, sinners. But Christ's death then becomes the hinge point. So you go from the story of failure, which is the Old Testament, is the story of failure to the story of success and blessing. And so the resurrection of Christ awakens the church, called out us, called out from among the nations to be a witness for Christ until he returns. Then the success of the church awakens Israel as a nation. They're going to be provoked to jealousy by the church and finally uh, fulfill the destiny that uh, Christ has uh, actually promised to them as a nation. It's going to take the new covenant to do that where he makes them obedient. He doesn't just tell them, give them the law um, uh, in order for them to be obedient, but he actually gives his Holy Spirit to make them obedient like he's given to us to accomplish our uh, mission. So uh, the success of the church is going to awaken Israel as a nation. The success of Israel then is going to awaken the whole world so that all the nations of the world follow in Israel's example, so that the actual character of the world becomes obedience to uh, the Lord instead of disobedience as we experience now. And then the success of the whole world um, is going to awaken all creation for the 1,000-year reign of Christ. And Romans talks about that um, creation itself groaning to be set free with uh, the children of God, and it awaits that um uh, point. So um, kind of a, the theme that emerges from all this is that man does what he can do, his worst, his best, doesn't matter, it all fails, um, and then God has to redeem, and he does it through Christ, through a work that only Christ um, can do. And so uh, God is demonstrating in all of these things his character as a redeemer in uh, restoring what is ruined and um, death and resurrection is really the pattern. So the New Testament fits the pattern of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is um, speaks of the death of Israel 
in order that it might be resurrected. And that hasn't happened yet at the end of the Old Testament. Actually, it hasn't happened yet even now, although it's been sort of sealed with the cross and the resurrection of Christ. But in all of those things, um, the big picture is that God is showing himself to be a redeemer in all of those ways. He's showing that the only hope is death and resurrection. The nation has to die. The nation of Israel has to die in order to be resurrected in Christ. And that's true of you as well, your life has to die with Christ. Everything, the best of what you are, the best of what you can give to God has to die in Christ that you might relate to God in a totally different way, relate to him in Christ. And uh, in that way, God is a redeemer in Christ. So um tried to kind of state the theme of scripture with a emphasis on why you're reading so much about um, this kingdom that never amounts to a whole lot in uh, world history and yet uh, God has his eye upon it, all the ups and downs of it. Um, in scripture, you're not to forget that it's the story of failure. It's actually the story of death. You read Lamentations. Um, in At the end of Israel's history where Jerusalem dies, the capital is like the death of a dream. And yet out of the ashes of that is going to arise um, an obedient nation because of Christ, because of God's work in Christ, which reflects his character that he is a redeemer. And so we're to know him through Christ and to know his character in that same way, according to his word. Okay. Um, ask me anything about the Bible, about Bible reading or comment. Maybe an encouraging comment about Bible reading. Okay. I hope you'll um, endeavor to do it, to be more faithful in reading uh, your Bible each day, to be learning more of God's character, to find your life in um, what God has said and, and the words of Scripture. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word, for your word. We thank you that your word is life. Your word is uh, how you give life. It's how you restore what has been ruined. And so we confess, apart from you, we stand ruined by our sin, without hope. And yet, uh, by your work in Christ, of a crucified Savior, of his Holy Spirit, put in our hearts, you restore what is ruined, and you do it by speaking a word into our ears, something uh, overlooked uh, by the world around us trying, who's trying to figure out God apart from your word, apart from what you say about yourself. And we pray that you would prevent us from that foolishness uh, that we might pay heed to the real wisdom uh, of knowing you according to what you have spoken. We pray that you'd make your word precious to us, and especially um, in the midst of whatever troubles this uh, upcoming year may reveal, pray that your word would be more precious uh, to us in this coming year. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.